This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Arkansas 1st District Representative Rick Crawford. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta and their well-being portal. Syngenta believes we are all stronger together. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congressman Rick Crawford next. During this unprecedented time, Syngenta offers resources to protect more than crops. Syngenta's well-being portal connects people with ways to stay healthy and active, manage stress, and enjoy more of life. To access the portal, click the link in AgriPulse. Syngenta believes we're all stronger together. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Arkansas 1st District Representative Rick Crawford is a veteran with an affinity for protecting the nation and feeding its people. Crawford says food security and national security go hand in hand. A nation that can't feed and clothe itself and shelter itself through its agricultural production is strategically vulnerable. And quite frankly, I think we're seeing the evidence of that with China right now. China can't rely on their own resources. They've got too many people and they rely on others to feed and clothe themselves. And that presents a strategic vulnerability. And I think, quite frankly, that probably is how it's it's manifest in their bad behavior in terms of their economic belligerence in the global marketplace. It is because they know they're dependent on others for that sustainability. And, And we don't have that problem in the United States, and I don't want to ever have that problem in the United States. But what this coronavirus has done is has kind of exposed, you know, I, I use this term in, in, in talking about crises in general, it exposes weaknesses, gaps, and vulnerabilities. And we've seen where it has exposed those weaknesses, gaps, and vulnerabilities in our own food chain, and we're doing everything we can to shore that up. But what we don't want to do is become a situation like China has where we're reliant on other countries to feed our people. Do you recognize a problem with our food chain or just areas that need to be bolstered? Areas that need to be bolstered. And if there is a problem, it really kind of comes from marketing. And that is that we rely too heavily on a single market, and that's China. Farmers know better than that. And they know that they can't rely on a single source for everything. And but when we as a nation, when we fall into this rut of relying on the Chinese market, almost exclusively I don't want to say exclusively, but certainly of the largest percentage of our economic output, particularly through an agriculture, is destined for China. Now that's probably not going to change in that they have a billion and a half people to feed and, and they're a significant market. But the way we access that market is problematic, and I think when when we allow them to bully us to the extent that they have done over the last 20 years, you know, think about this. They got into the WTO, I think if my dates are right, December 11th of 2001, and they started cheating on December 12th of 2001. They have continued to cling to this developing market status. They have arrived. They are no longer a developing economy. They need to be playing by the rules. They need to stop loading their currency. It's things like that that create problems for the rest of the world. How we address that, I think, is simply by engaging in bilateral trade deals in the Pacific Rim with some allies that we have there. And and I hear from countries all the time that that void of leadership in the Pacific Rim where the United States has taken a leadership role has really led to the rise of China, not only economically but militarily and politically, 
and, and we need to we need to change that trajectory, and we can do that by engaging in these bilateral trade deals, particularly with countries like India, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, and others who are are now emerging as a, a real viable alternative to foreign direct investment in China. So, um, you know, I, I took a, a lot of time to answer your first question, but what it comes down to is that it's essential that we maintain integrity in our own food chain from a national security perspective. Well, did farmers do wrong, though, when China knocked on the door and wanted to buy more product? No, not at all. I mean, like I said, I think we're going to have to continue to recognize that China is a significant market destination. I just think we have to rethink how we access that. So right now, for lack of a better term, they're basically a wholesale market. What we may have to think about is how we change that, and maybe they become a retail market. And by that, I mean Maybe we start to sell to Japan, India, Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, and allow them to be the distributors into that marketplace. Because you know, yeah, it's gonna it'll, it'll get into our pocket a little bit, but it would be a heck of a lot less burdensome than a 25% plus tariff rate for American goods coming into China. So I just think that there's probably things we can do differently that would facilitate access into China on more favorable terms, more consistent terms, not having to worry about, you know, the, the political vagaries that drive uh, China's buying patterns. Uh, like we're seeing now, you know, we have this phase one China trade deal, and we're already seeing some pretty strong signals that they're not going to adhere to that. That's what I'm talking about. It's things like that where, you know, they, they leverage these scenarios for their own good, and we end up you know, coming up on the short end of the deal. So I just think we need to do a better job. In, and not only would it benefit us in terms of accessing the China market on a, on a more consistent basis, but it would really shore up those relationships in the Pacific Rim that I think are essential. Congressman, we know you have an affinity for agriculture and an endearing role in national security uh, coming from a military family. Uh, with regard to the Chinese and their actions toward Hong Kong and threats toward Taiwan over a period of time, how is that a concern for the U.S. and for the rest of the world? It really has the potential to disrupt economic activity in that part of the world. I mentioned India and Vietnam and, and Malaysia and others, but Hong Kong and, and Taiwan are integral to that as well. And, and there's you know just lingering hostilities there between Taiwan, mainland China, as well as Hong Kong and mainland China, and those have historically been really good partners for the United States. What we don't want to see is uh, not only the economic side of that being disrupted, but quite frankly, I mean, you've got the potential for human rights abuses that we saw, particularly bubbling up in Hong Kong that were reminiscent of Tiananmen Square in 1989. So, you know, in the bigger picture, we also have to consider those kinds of things, you know, where you see China being belligerent in their own area, in their own space with regard to how they treat people in Hong Kong, for example, how they treat their own people. They've got issues with ethnic minorities in China. They've got religious issues there with, uh, you know, imprisoning religious and ethnic minorities, political dissenters and so on, re-education camps. All those things are, are part and parcel of why we should be pushing back on China. But it's particularly disturbing to see them becoming more and more aggressive with Hong Kong and Taiwan. Did you have concerns or do you have concerns now about Chinese investment into agriculture and specifically industries that are here in the U.S.? I most certainly do, and I think that's an important point that you bring that up. I think we're going to have to tighten up CFIUS, particularly with regard to China, because China has, it's obvious that they would like to have 
a controlling interest in U.S. ag inputs. Uh, and when that happens, we have a major problem on our hands. And so, for example, um, you know, when, when the, the Bear Monsanto transaction took place, there was a provision put in place that required that Bayer stand up a U.S. entity in order to be approved for CFIUS. Well, that's good, except that that doesn't prevent Bayer parent company from engaging in joint ventures with companies like Alibaba, which they have stated that they were interested in doing. That puts us in a very vulnerable spot because China is actively engaged in collecting data. To what end, we don't really know. In fact, I'm not even sure the Chinese know why they're so aggressively collecting data. But the data that they're able to collect from U.S. agriculture, that could be a leveraged against the United States. And what we don't want to do is see China in a position to control ag inputs here in the United States. Talk about the CFAT program and the dollars that were appropriated through CARES. How did it meet the needs of your farmers? And, Congressman, is there anyone in your state that's being left out? Look, these are all well-intentioned provisions here to try and help agriculture. But as with anything, I mean, you end up with well-intentioned legislation that does leave some people in the lurch. So we've, we've heard this story from cotton. We've heard it from livestock, particularly cattle, where the, the numbers were somewhat random and arbitrary on, on dates and so on. And so we're getting pushback from first from cattle producers who didn't like the provisions there that they felt like some of them were being left out based on an arbitrary date. Uh, and the same thing with cotton. It felt like that, you know, there were provisions made for cotton that was marketed before a certain date versus after a certain date. And so that uh, the disparity there was apparent. And then simple things within a commodity, for example, medium and long grain rice, you know, under, under CFAP, there weren't any provisions for medium grain. And we're seeing now a, a lot of medium grain rice that needs to move. And that's having some price issue as well. So we're going to try and fix this. These are you know, kind of some issues that we'll take up with the secretary and, and others. But it's not as though these programs were not with the best intentions. It's just that sometimes oversight and just errors and, and you know, human error result in some shortcomings. And so we're going to try to address those as much as we can. What were your thoughts about the HEROES Act from, A, the total spending measure, and then the agriculture provisions that are a part of it? Well, I, I didn't support the HEROES Act, obviously. I think there's a recognition that, you know, the coronavirus has exposed some some areas where we need to help and shore up support for farmers. I think that it has devolved somewhat into political consideration, and, and so uh, I think that's as much of a problem as anything. I don't think you should look at agriculture as a political interest, but more of a national security interest and not trying to turn it into a a desire to ingratiate yourself to a particular constituency. Earlier this spring, the president said, and even Speaker Pelosi said, that we should spend money toward infrastructure in the country. And knowing that you said on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, I would bring this up because infrastructure is critical for U.S. agriculture. Uh, Senator McConnell has suggested that he doesn't see room in this next round for infrastructure spending, that it should be for corona relief and corona relief only. Well, the numbers that we first started hearing about infrastructure investment going back to 2015, and Donald Trump made this one of the key planks in his platform was investing in American infrastructure, and we first started hearing about a $500 billion price tag. 
And by the time he got elected, it became about a $1.2 trillion um, idea. And then, then you know, uh, Pelosi came back and said, well, we want to spend $2 trillion. I think it bumped it up to $1.8 trillion at one point, and I think then it got to $2 trillion. And the president was willing to even, you know, if that was a bluff, he was willing to call the bluff and say, yeah, okay, we'll spend that much money. we got to figure out how we're going to do it. But, yeah, it's that important that we want to do it. And then she balked on it and said, no, we're not going to work with the president on infrastructure. Then we see nothing happening with regard to infrastructure investment. There are a whole lot of things that, simple things that need to take place. And I've seen this uh, derailed on multiple fronts in the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. For example, I, I, I am a ranking member on rail and pipeline, and we haven't been able to move um, a FEMSA reauthorization, Pipelines Hazardous Material Safety uh, Reauthorization. Um, we had a bipartisan bill that they said no to. They put up a bill of their own and couldn't even muster the votes for that one. So they came back to us and said, okay, I guess it looks like we're going to have to take a, a bipartisan approach to it, which I support. But we still haven't been able to move it. And that's just one example of how things have devolved onto party lines. And so if we're going to do infrastructure, which I support, I think, number one, we have to look at it from a realistic perspective of, of a price tag that's manageable. And I would say that the coronavirus has brought that price tag down tremendously. If we were looking at, you know, potentially $1.8 to $2 trillion in investment, I don't know where that money would come from. And we were going to have to rely heavily on private sector um, to try and, and cobble together the capital stack to realize a $2 trillion investment over a 15 to 20 year period. I'm, I'm okay with that as long as we're seeing that you know, uh, materialize in the form of improved infrastructure. As you mentioned before, I'm on the House Intelligence Committee, and as such, I get to travel around a lot of countries around the world. And I can tell you that it's almost embarrassing that we have uh, infrastructure in the shape that it's in by comparison when you look at countries, for example, like Korea and their infrastructure. I was in Croatia a couple of years ago, and they have a pretty impressive infrastructure, and the 20 years removed from a pretty serious war. And they've been able to emerge with a pretty strong, well-developed infrastructure themselves. And yet, we're the most prominent economy on the planet, and we're still behind the eight ball with regard to infrastructure, which has a really negative effect on our agriculture producers and their ability to move product. So, yeah, we need to step it up on infrastructure investment and got to figure out how to do it. But we're going to have to think realistically about where the money comes from and, and and what that figure is. Congressman, uh, House Ag Chairman Colin Peterson didn't stand opposed to spending more money on agriculture if needed, but did suggest that whether it was an increase in the CCC authority or if it was assistance in some other measure, that perhaps the agriculture committees in the Congress should have some oversight or say in how those funds are distributed. What say you? I think so. I think when you uh, when you talk about CCC, you're you know you're kind of extraneous to the farm bill, and there's probably a limiting factor to some degree on oversight where that money goes, how it's meted out, and and even uh, how it's overseen. I would say if we need to spend more money on agriculture, I'd be for it. I just think we have to be careful about how we authorize it and what we do with regard to making sure that. USDA respects the wishes of Congress with the intent of what we're trying to accomplish. 
And at the same time, I mean, you know, we've seen the administration has basically run things like the MFP through CCC. That was extraneous to the farm bill. So even though there are some similarities in the way some of the standards that they applied for eligibility and so on with regard to MFP, the fact remains that it's essentially been an administrative prerogative and it's taken Congress to a large degree out of their oversight role. And so I think that's one of the things we have to consider. So agriculture came into this COVID-19 pandemic after a long downturn and a big drop in farm income already. Congressman, can we afford another purge in farmers, especially if it falls on the young farmers and those that were trying to break into the business? That is going to be a major problem because the mean age of a farmer now is on an upward trajectory. I think we're at around 56, 57 years old. And that needs to come down. We need to change the trajectory and start bringing more young people into agriculture in a meaningful way if we're going to pass this torch on to the next generation. And right now, we're not tracking positively in that regard. So this has created a problem there because, obviously, these younger folks don't have the liquidity, uh, the equity built up in their operations that the older producers would have. And that could be a problem, and we and, and it could lead to taking them out of the equation early instead of seeing them through to help weather this economic storm, and then get to the other side of it and help us move that nut, that needle in a more productive way. But uh, I have some real concerns about that, just in general, about how we address the aging farm population and what we do to get young people more involved. I have a variety of ideas, I think, on how we can do that and incentivize young people to come back to the farm, to stay on the farm uh, in, a, in a meaningful way. But this has really complicated that. And, and so I'm going to be paying close attention to what we can do to address that going forward because that could, has the potential to be a major problem for us. I'd be interested in your thoughts about the renewable fuel industry, both ethanol and biodiesel. Uh, certainly ethanol consumes a tremendous amount of U.S. corn, and we've seen that market loss because of the downturn and driving and the, and the demand for gasoline. But even before the COVID crisis hit, we were facing an issue with the Environmental Protection Agency and the granting of those small refinery exemptions. How do you see the nation's renewable fuel policy, and, and what do you hope for here uh, should we also be looking at some funds to prop up the renewable fuel industry? I think that the you know, renewable fuels are, I think we need to look at consumer demand. I think we need to look at alternative uses. I think we need to look at a, you know, a variety of issues. One of the things we worked really closely on through this uh, COVID-19 uh, period was with the ethanol industry and how they could redirect some of their resources to uh, hand sanitizer. And that's been a, a very productive in a time when, you know, they needed all the help they could get. That's not necessarily going to be, you know, the be-all, end-all of, of staining the ethanol uh, industry and ethanol production in this country. But I think it's, you know, it, it's worth noting that, you know, maybe there's some opportunities for alternate uses and not just in fuel but in other instances where we might be able to uh, expand research to to find other uses for biofuels and ethanol being one of them. So I'm open to all suggestions on what we do uh, with regard to renewable fuels and how we can sustain the effort. But, you know, the the fact is that probably, you know, we've seen this over the last few years where we, as we start to see economic conditions change, the demand picture changes and people's habits change with regard to travel and and even their, their choices for 
vehicles. We're seeing an increase in hybrid vehicles, and we're seeing an increase in more affordable electric cars. Uh, and so that's going to be an issue, and that's going to put pressure on renewables as well. So we need to be thinking broadly about uh, what what the future holds for renewable fuels, and not just in ethanol, but also in, in, uh, in biodiesel and others. Congressman Crawford, we want to thank you very much for taking time to spend with us here on this edition of Open Mic. Uh, we thank you for your comments and certainly for your time. And as it is Open Mic, sir, you get the last word today. Well, listen, I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and uh, look forward to the next one. And I'm always up for a conversation about agriculture. It's a passion of mine and, and uh, something that I've spent most of my adult life in in this industry and, and uh, come from a background of agriculture. And, and uh, so... I'm always open to conversation and, and new ideas and, and, and willing to share mine. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Our thanks to Arkansas Congressman Rick Crawford, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta and their well-being portal. We're all stronger together. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.